The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Great to be back. I see some old faces that I knew from before. Oh, good. Um, so, a lot of echo here. Every time I get to preach at in town, I'm in the perfect mood to worship God. You know why? Because I, on the way over here, I don't know about you, but the speed limit, let's say it's 35, I usually run around 38, so breaking the law of God or law of humans makes you feel like you need forgiveness and grace. And so I feel like I'm in the right mood to worship God and to proclaim the forgiveness and restoration of God. So today's Father's Day. As many of, as already been said, as fathers, we try our best to give our children, instill in them a sense of belonging, security, happiness, and also confidence. Father's Day, not too dissimilar to um, Mother's Day, could also be a hard day, difficult day. Been in ministry for about 27 years, and I've had a number of people who said, I do not want to call God, my heavenly father, because the earthly father I had, and you fill in the blank. So if it is okay, I'd like for us to pray as the Lord's mercies will be all of us as we live through and even if not celebrate Father's Day, especially as we come to our heavenly father, son, and the Holy Spirit in worship. So let's pray. Gracious God, calm our hearts, settle them on you and you alone especially mine own, Lord, as we speak and proclaim your unmatchable and unsurpassed grace and excellencies of your being and of your work. May your people be convicted and comforted in knowing that you are who you say you are. 
and that we are truly your children, beloved, free, therefore truly confident in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, Christian conversion, according to St. Paul in today's text, brings about a major reevaluation of our currency and confidence. Let me say that again, because I think it's pretty important for us to think through that. So, conversion, Christian conversion that the Apostle Paul went through, and many of us might have gone through in our own life journey, that this story in Philippians 3 that the writer St. Paul himself talks about brings about a major revaluation of our currency. If you're in the financial services, you know exactly what I'm talking about, revaluating certain companies or certain things, and so certain priorities and perspectives that we might have in our life journey, and also, equally importantly, our sense of confidence. What or who gives you a sense of confidence in your life? Many of us, both in the world and also, if we're honest, even in our churches, we seek our sense of confidence from our zip codes where we live, pedigrees, what schools we went to, where we work, assets, how much our net worth is, networks with whom we hang out, play, and get to name drop, and not as often from our relationship with Christ, if we're really honest. That's true of me, and perhaps true of you too. Remembering that this letter of Philippians was written to a fledgling church community, which was experiencing a couple of opposite realities. First, it was reeling from the joy of discovering their identities in Christ Jesus, the perfect God-man in whose death and resurrection these new Christians were catechized into and engrafted through baptism, Eucharist, and the Word. Secondly, and quite conversely, it was also trying to figure out what it meant for them to be Christians within the cultural, social, and moral mores of the mighty Roman Empire. I mean, the way of the Roman Empire was always right. Ask anyone in Rome and they'll say, yes, Rome is right. Might makes it right. Romans are to put their trust and confidence in the law, order, and peace that the empire was bringing to its citizens. Paul, in this section of the letter, uses a poignant autobiographical snapshot to lovingly teach his beloved friends, all of whom are living under the aegis of Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that our ultimate and fundamental confidence in life has to be in Christ and Christ alone. In fact, what he's reminding this young Christian community was that being, quote-unquote, found in Christ as a group meant that he was learning increasingly the joy and pain of putting his basic and ultimate confidence in Christ. Put differently, the church's grammar was to be constructed with Christ as the chief cornerstone and the chief teacher, as the Alpha and the Omega, thus his confidence was to be found again in Jesus. Without that, Without that, the church, whether in Philippi or Nashville, was nothing more than a thinly veiled sham for a religious country club where human boasting, self-sufficiency, and will to power in all of its most advanced and beautified form of covering was a driving engine. So it does behoove us to ask this slightly uncomfortable yet absolutely crucial question, what or who is my fundamental and ultimate confidence? 
Let me start this sermon with three vignettes, and then we'll get to today's text, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, in a verse-by-verse exposition. Normally, I have three points. Today, I don't have three points. I may not even have a point, but we'll go through each verse, kind of rambling our way through. So the first vignette, first story is from about 1998, during which a friend from New York City visited us while Mickey, my wife, and I were living in England. Um, and as graduate students. And two, the second story comes from the movie, The Greatest Showman. Some of you might have seen the movie. And we'll watch the video of the song called This Is Me, a little bit of that. And third is from the scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 22, 1 and 2. So let me tell you about this first story. So we had this uh, friend of ours, um, um, she came to visit us. She was more like the sister of one of my dearest friends. Um, Henry, and so she came to visit us, and she said, you know, I'm having a real hard time with attending church. She lived in New York City, and she had gone to college in New York City, and she started, she was looking for work, and she said, you know, I go to this church, and if I told you that church, all of you will know it. So it's a very prominent evangelical church, and it's comprised primarily of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, so the sort of bunched up young people, right? And when, when I go to this church, she says, they usually ask me these three questions. The currency in this church, not officially from the pulpit, but in the way that the, the sort of a, the, the colloquial expressions went was like this, three questions. Where do you work? Where did you go to school? Where do you live? Now, those three could be just innocuous questions, right? They're just trying to figure out. I mean, we all kind of ask questions like that. But for this particular sister, she says, you know what? What if you don't have any of these three currencies? that you're not working at the right place, you didn't go to the right school, wherever they may be, and you're not living in the right place. So much so that for this sister, she was seriously contemplating leaving Christianity because she felt like that church or churches of that type didn't really have a place for her. So we raise this question, and I'm submitting to you this morning that I think a church that's putting its confidence in something other than Christ alone could easily become or have the kind of unofficial currency as these three questions or other business cards or name badges or whatever else or confidences they may be. The second uh, story comes from this music video. How many of you have seen the movie, The Greatest Showman? Okay, right. I want to encourage you to watch it, actually. Uh, So I watched this with my sister when I was visiting her recently, and she's a great big-time dancer, right? And she was dancing through most of the movie, and, and when I watched this song or heard this song for the first time, I got up and started dancing, and you'll see exactly why. And it's such, to me, this is the most powerful anthem of what the Christian community should be. So let's have a look. Uh, It's only 84 seconds. I just cut off the most important part here, so... I am brave, I am 
Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. I know that there is a place for us, for we are glorious. I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. You know what? When I, even as I just read these words right now in front of you, I just have these chills. Because for me, when I first saw that song and watched that song, I said to myself, this is what the church should be. This is the place of inclusion and embrace, rather than exclusion and say, you don't belong. We don't want your broken parts. No one will love you as you are. So the challenge for us is to think about what kind of confidence, what kind of currency we need to put forth in order to be a place where people who feel like they don't belong in the world or they're accursed by God, will feel like, you know what? This is the place that I need to come to. And that to me is a challenge for the evangelical community in 21st century North America and globally, but particularly here in America. The third vignette comes from 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is a story and I'll read it to you. This is David who had to leave Gath and escape to the cave of Adullam. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cave of Adullam, but this is a very important cave. If you don't remember much other, many other caves, remember the Cave of Adullam. I'll tell you why. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they all went down to David there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him at the Cave of Adullam, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. You see, friends, When I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor said, you know what, folks, this story of David at the cave of Adullam and 400 people who were losers and down and outers and nobody wanted it, undesirables, untouchables, and all of them, they came to David and he became their leader. And he says, my professor said, you know what, this is the picture of the church. This should be the picture of the church where people who are discontented, in debt, in distress, down and out, and totally kind of you know, damned by the rest of the society can find a place. So how do we live this out? Because this cave was a place where this motley crew, unwanted ones, the untouchables and the riffraff came to David, who is a key of type of Christ in the Old Testament. So the question is, is the church a place where all wanted, all unwanted and undesirable and untouchables can come without feeling like second class and find embrace and love? See, that's the subtext to really properly understand what it is that Paul is so lovingly trying to unpack for the followers of Christ in the city of Philippi. Because they were living in the best empire ever. They were so proud of their pedigree. They're so proud of their national identity. They're so proud of who they are and what they had. And Paul says, you know what, you're learning a different grammar now. You're not learning a Roman grammar, the grammar of the empire. 
You're learning the grammar of a Jewish subject, subjugated nation, and a carpenter who didn't go to college, as far as we know, who did not receive rabbinic training, who did not come from good family, and you're basically exchanging all of the Roman goodies to embrace this Jewish stuff, and you're saying, I have truly found it. And so Paul is lovingly kind of teasing away, tearing away all of the strappings that matter to the Philippians and says, you know what, what really matters for you and for me is Christ and having confidence in Christ alone. Not all Judaism was a target of Paul's withering criticism. Yet it seems that a good deal of Jewish practice and observance might have been more legally orientated rather than focused on chesed or the Jewish doctrine of God's unprecedented grace. Paul is saying that even amid our best efforts to please God, we could establish a system that is safeguarding against the very thing we need. By keeping, by being religious, we may actually building a system where we actually don't need God because I feel like I've done all the things that I need to be acceptable to God. Paul seems rather heaven-bent or hell-bent, however you want to put it, on showing that such confidence of putting your confidence in the flesh and your religious, religious observances is actually antithetical or opposite to the gospel according to Jesus, which is achievable only by grace through faith and not by works. And Paul says, as, we was, uh, as it was read to us, Paul says, you know what, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I've got more, he says. And he chronicles and catalogs seven things that he's confident of. And he says, you know, you think you got it? And he says, you know, watch out for those dogs and mutilators of the flesh. This is what he's talking about here. For some people, a sort of external act and ritual mattered more as a badge of belonging to a community. And for the Jewish community, it was circumcision for male as a sort of a, a, a uh, type of the kind of belonging that you wanted to have. So on the eighth day, most kosher Jews would circumcise their children. Very interesting aside, when our son Christian was born about four, 13 and a half years ago in Boston, and my wife, and I, I, don't, I never really told her this, but I thought that exchange was really hilarious because the doctor who delivered Christian was a Jewish doctor, and he asked my wife, do you want your son to be circumcised? And you know what her answer was? She says, of course, we are Christians. And I thought, like, that's really an interesting answer if you think about it, because Christians did not. Did you know that? Christians did not always circumcise their babies. It was the Jews that did that. And you didn't get it. Never mind. I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> I, I thought that whole thing was really because Christians, never mind, okay, but circumcised on the eighth day that Paul, St. Paul was circumcised in the proper manner and on the rightly appointed day according to the law of Moses. Two, that he was proud of the fact that he, was, he belonged to the people of Israel. He was not either a juvenile or adult convert to Judaism, that he was born in a Jewish context. So for the Jewish families of Paul's type, what mattered to them a lot was pedigree, what mattered to him a lot was purity. Number three, he says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the other thing that mattered was lineage, how you can trace your identity. He says, you know what? I can even trace my identity back to the tribe of Benjamin. Guess who the first king of Israel was? Saul. Guess what tribe he belonged to? Benjamin. So it's kind of, hey, I can brag about this a little bit. Number four, it says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? So during this time period, the first century uh, AD, many of the Jews were not living in what we would call kind of the Judea, uh, Judea and Samaria in that area. They had experienced the exile, and then as a result, their, their, their peoples had become scattered. So they were basically a diaspora community, meaning that they were not living within, let's say, 50-mile radius of Israel, qua Israel today. 
So they were living in different countries. Guess what Paul, uh, you know where he was from, right? He was living in North Africa in this place called Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. So his parents made sure that Paul, Saul was going to be raised as someone who knew Hebrew, who spoke Hebrew. So he was basically either bilingual or trilingual, that he was a, a man who was kind of deeply kind of entrenched and, and kind of accustomed to the ways of the world, Jewish and Roman and so on. So he was really kind of a cosmopolitan kind of guy. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Number five, he says, I, regarding the law, I was a Pharisee, meaning that he was a super duper serious guy about his religion. So much so that he also studied under this really well-renowned teacher named Gamaliel. So he says, you know what, if, if you want to kind of put forth your, your resume and compare it to mine, I'm going to beat you every time. Number six, regarding the zeal, he says, I was so excited about his Jewish identity and covenantal kind of relationality with God that he believed that persecuting Christians was the way to please God. So I did that, he says. And number seven, he says, righteousness based on the law. If you want to talk about righteousness based on the law and law observance, he says, I was faultless. Perhaps hyperbole a little bit, perhaps a little bit of exaggeration, but we need to take what he's saying quite seriously. He says, you know what? If anyone could be declared righteous because they kept the law of Moses, he says, I was the one. So seven things that he was proud of. Let's have a look at verse 7. But whatever was, again, gains to me, now I consider them lost for the sake of Christ. So we need to ask that question. What happened? He was such an observant Jew and excited about keeping the Torah and all of that. What happened? Damascus happened. On the road to Damascus, he meets the risen Christ. And Jesus asked Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he says, you know what? Your kind of effort to, to, to achieve righteousness in God through your actions, you're actually persecuting me. When you're persecuting the church and his world became turned upside down and he began to understand his life and identity in the way that he has so he says for the sake of christ that expression for the sake of christ is a very important phrase in paul's journey of life neither jewish lineage or law of moses was anything according to paul nor the roman empire and its glorious law aqueducts senate and all of his engineering marvels was anything because both, if they would become the ultimate confidence giver, they would be misused as a way of buttressing our own self-confidence apart from the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at this point, we should ask this question. What is so great, surpassingly great about knowing Jesus? We're living in Nashville, Tennessee, and as I was driving on Hillsborough Road, I passed by about, I don't know, 10, 15 good church, big churches. If I choose my different road on Franklin, I probably come across equally as many number, Old Hickory. Wherever I go, there are churches. In fact, when I moved here about 12 years ago, I experienced something that I never experienced in my life. Traffic jam around 7 or 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. You know what I'm talking about? They're all, all on, on these major roads. I mean, because people are going to Wednesday kind of midweek services. There's a traffic jam. Before moving here, we lived in Boston, not like that. Before that, we lived in England, not like that. So perhaps we are so enculturated in the, the kind of Christian subculture that we don't really know what Paul is talking about here. In the city of Philippi, they did not have a church. In fact, this is the first church ever. Okay? And Paul is writing excitedly to tell these young Christians about what it means to have your confidence and your ultimate confidence in the thing that will not rot or destroy, get destroyed or get 
thrown out. Says, you know what? Your confidence, first and foremost, beginning and the end, should be ultimately about knowing God, that God has known you through Jesus Christ. It is not where you have gone to school. It is not where you live. It is not whom you know. It is not that, you know, whoever that you can name drop. None of these things ultimately matter, Paul says, because first and foremost, it is Christ. What Paul was assiduously defending throughout his ministry was that the Jesus movement, which will soon be called Christianity, was not a novel invention from Judaism or deviation or departure from Judaism. He would say, no, no, it was actually a fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel, etc., etc. And you get the picture. In fact, this idea of boasting in knowing God or having God as the ultimate confidence can be found throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which is one of my favorite texts in all of the Old Testament. Listen to these words. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they know me. That they know me. Not about your riches, not about your wisdom, not about your strength, but that you know me, that I'm the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. In other words, from Adam and Eve all the way to Jeremiah and the exilic Jews, and now in the times of Paul the Apostle, it was truly and only about knowing God and God's gracious actions that really mattered. God desires to be there in the beginning of our relationship with God, and the final one into his loving arms we run as the final destination and delight of all of our desires. So let's try to switch gears and think about it this way, okay? Think of the church as a grammar school, okay? So people have likened the church as the pillar of truth or hospital or, you know, whatever. There are different images that people have, or sacrament or signpost that points us to the living actions of God. Think of the church as a grammar school. It teaches grammar and this new language functions and how this language functions and what rules are to be used. That's what you learn in grammar schools. How many of you remember learning grammar? Okay. My son, who just passed seventh grade, was learning grammar. I think he went through first through sixth grade, but didn't really learn grammar as such, but he was having this grammar stuff. And he was like, hey, what is this? And I looked at the grammar book. I had no idea. You know what I mean? Like if you kind of speak the language as kind of your thing, you don't really think about grammar that much. But you see, I learned English grammar when I first came to America when I was 15, actually. I remember learning the new grammar because I didn't speak the language until I was 15. I didn't really speak it until much later. I just had a real hard time with the language. You know that English is really a hard language to learn? It's not an easy, I mean, there are all of these things that like homonyms and stuff like that I still don't get. But anyway, grammar is the stuff that you learn when you're especially tackling a new language. You see, this is it. Paul is saying, Paul is basically teaching these new Christians in Philippi a grammar. Grammar of grace, not grammar of works. Paul is basically saying, okay, let me teach you this new language, subject and object and all of these things, conjugation, all of these things. In the church, we learn a new language of praising God more and praising selfless, thinking others more, including God, and learning the beauty of self-forgetfulness. We're so preoccupied, I am so preoccupied with myself. 
the church, we're learning more about the other, the ultimate other being God and the wonder of self-forgetfulness. What Paul is doing is teaching this new group of Christians, almost all of whom are Gentile converts, that the true Christian message and identity is that we learn to put less and less confidence in our fleshly accomplishments and name badges and business cards, whether Jewish, Roman, or pagan. When we become more and more forgetful of these things, remember that which truly matters. So here I realize it's perhaps not my place to teach a cuss word while preaching, certainly not in Greek, but I'm going to do that today. See where Paul says rubbish in verse 8 that you've read? Look at verse 8. Our translation renders it at garbage or rubbish. It's a euphemism. It's putting it in a mild way so that you don't get offended because the actual word is much closer to crap or S blank blank T. The Greek word is skubala. Skubala. So whether in English or in Greek, Paul is dropping an S-bomb right there. <laughs> to show that all that he regarded as important before is like absolute crap that you want to dispense with ASAP, think about it like this. Many of you have dogs, right? So do I. Let's say we walk our dogs. Okay, we walk our dog, whatever, your, you know, your favorite creature in the world, aside from your family, well, a dog is your family member, and you walk your dog, and your dog poops. You normally have something to, you know, pick it up. What do you normally do with it? Let's say you absolutely adore this dog. Do you hold on to it for a while as a memento of, oh, this part of my dog, I want to hold on to it as long as I can? No, you don't. If you find somebody like that, you might think, what's wrong with that person? Get it? Paul is saying, all of my accomplishments, all of my confidence is like Skubala, is that S-bomb, that your favorite dog's poop that you actually throw away as soon as possible, right? You don't hold on to it and keep it as a memento, like I want to hold on to it. No, you don't. Think about it like that. And think about the radical transformation in his perspective for Paul. He used to hold on to these things very, very dearly, but somehow something happened. Damascus happened. Jesus happened. And he says, you know what? All of these things that mattered to me a lot before doesn't. So the, the, the point for us here at InTown and Central is how do we make CPC a community where we regard a lot of those things that many in the world may say that's so important as nothing but scubala. That's a good word, word for the day. S-K-U-B-U-L-A, skubala. That's a Greek word. You can drop it in your conversation. Yeah, you know, you know this Greek word? I learned it yesterday, and I don't know. Recently, I got to watch this movie. Uh, was novel written by R.J. Palacio called Wonder. How many of you have seen the movie Wonder? Oh, I love that movie. Absolutely loved it. It just brought me to tears. A novel that was made into a movie starring Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. The main character, as you remember, is Augie Pullman, right? Augie Pullman... A guy who was fearfully and wonderfully made by God, yet by many of his friends and many people around, he was a grotesque creature. He was a one student who was often ridiculed and bullied for his looks. And the smear tactic of alleging that touching him will get you the plague, etc., etc. Painful stuff. Here's my favorite part of what Augie says. He says, for me, Halloween is the best holiday in the world. It even beats Christmas. Why? I get to dress up in a costume. I get to wear a mask. I get to go around like every other kid with a mask, and nobody thinks I look weird. Nobody takes a second look. 
Nobody notices me. Nobody knows me. I wish every day could be Halloween. We would all wear masks all the time. Then we could walk around and get to know each other before we got to see what we look like under the masks. This is it. You know, do you know, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like Augie? You wish you could wear a mask and so that no one will notice you for whatever you, however you look? All of you in high school or younger, you feel that way? All of you 21 and above, do you feel that way? You know what I mean? I sure as heck do know. People's colors, people's complexions, how they're put together, height, weight, size, shape, those things so quickly have become the way that people discriminate against one another. Oh, that person's overweight. Oh, that person's not the right color. Oh, that person is this, that, and other. Augie's saying, Halloween is my favorite holiday. You know what? I hope for the church that Halloween is, every day is Halloween with Jesus. Because what Jesus gives you, according to Paul, is he gives you a new mask, new cover. That, you know, so often we look at somebody and quickly, instantaneously, instinctively we decide, oh, okay, is this person worthy? So I've been at Vanderbilt for 12 years, and I learned, and for seven years I lived with freshmen, and I learned a lot of stuff from these 18-year-olds about apps that I never heard of, and I mean, like, there, there is an app, there is still that app, I think, that you either go right or left, and you determine whether that person is worth hanging out. Some of you are like, I think you know what I'm talking about. And I said, this is terrible. Within microsecond, you're deciding, okay, I want to hang out with this person, hook up with this person or not. And that's our culture right now. Is it our culture at church? Let's really wrestle with it, friends, because let's not BS our way around and, you know, make the church a place for like only wonderful people who have got everything together. Because if that is the church, I don't want to have anything to do with that, nor should you. Stop playing, you know, whatever games with God and with yourself. We really need to think seriously about what it means to put our ultimate confidence in Jesus and Him alone. There are so many Augies out there in the world. I am an Augie. Some of you are an Augie and you don't want to admit it. It's okay to admit it in Jesus. Because the way I looked, I often felt like I don't belong there, I don't belong here. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Are we giving one another a chance to get to know each other before we got to see what we look like under the mask? In Jesus, we ought to find ourselves truly liberated. You know what? When you wear a mask, you know what it does? It hides you and it gives you a sense of different identity and liberty. You know what I'm talking about. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful book called Till We Have Faces, a book that I've never read yet. But every time I hear the title, I think of it like this. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful when we get to see Jesus that what we look like don't matter anymore? Talk to so many of my students of color. They say, you know what? I don't want to believe in Jesus because he's a white Jesus. No, 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 this is not white Jesus we're talking about. It's when we finally get to see the Lord, how we look, those very things that used to be used as a measure of discriminating or denying some people access to. And that's also true for white. Within white communities, those things are true. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's actually bring all of these things to Jesus and say, Lord, 
We want to put our ultimate confidence not in my culture, not in my color, not even in my creed, but my confidence is going to be found in you and you alone because you are the one who will never leave me nor forsake me. My youth will come and go. Believe me, I know. I used to think that I was fast and strong. My son proves to me every day that I'm an old fogey now. It's okay because day by day I'm being renewed by the knowledge of knowing Jesus who is our ultimate confidence. With that confidence, let us receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.